0: Hi, and welcome to the Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dr. Ann Eglash. I'm a clinical professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health and a board-certified lactation consultant.
1: And I'm your co-host, Dr. Karen Bodnar. I am a pediatric hospitalist at Inova Children's Hospital and an assistant professor of pediatrics at Virginia Commonwealth University. I'm also a board-certified lactation consultant.
0: This podcast is produced by the Institute for the Advancement of Breastfeeding and Lactation Education and is co-sponsored by the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Hi, Karen. How are you?
1: I'm doing great, Anne. How are you doing?
0: Good, good. It's nice to feel that there's some emergence out of this pandemic, huh?
1: Yeah, it's been really weird to actually get to be around other humans yeah, without a mask
0: even. I know, I know. I feel like, except that the traffic has really increased quite a bit. (laughs) Um, You have no idea. (laughs) Yeah, I guess not. I mean, Wisconsin versus the East Coast. Um, All right. Well, I have um, some sort of fun, interesting topics today. I thought first we would talk about postpartum hemorrhage and then talk about inverted nipples. So the first article is entitled Literature Review, Physiologic Management for Preventing Postpartum Hemorrhage. And uh, this was published uh, by a couple people in the in, in the journal Healthcare in 2021, so just recently. And the main citation, the, the main author is Almuteri. Um, and he basically summarizes literature and gives us some conjectures about skin-to-skin contact and breastfeeding, which is called expectant management in um, the third stage of labor. So he starts out, I should, shouldn't say he, because I don't know if this author is a he or she. So the author starts out discussing obstetrical hemorrhage and states that this is the leading cause of maternal death worldwide, accounting for about 27% of all maternal death. And this is even true in the United States. Um, so postpartum hemorrhage, so among like the obstetrical hemorrhages, like not all obstetrical hemorrhage happens, you know, at least the death is happening early postpartum, but postpartum hemorrhage in that third stage of labor accounts for 72% of the deaths due to obstetrical hemorrhage. So it's a huge issue. And I'll talk about why we've gotten to the point that we have with this active management to prevent it. Um, But just to digress for a moment, there are four reasons for postpartum hemorrhage, for postpartum bleeding, and um, and it's described as the four T's. First, there's trauma, which can happen from an episiotomy or some other laceration like the cervix, the vagina, or the perineum, um, or it can be due to uterine rupture. Um, The second type of postpartum bleeding is tone, so this is really one of the biggest reasons why this happens, um, called uterine atony, and this can be caused um, by actual induction of labor, use of oxytocin, interestingly, uterine fibroids can do it, prolonged labor, anesthesia, and then uterine overdistension. So it's more common in people who have a lot of contents in the uterus, like those who have multiples, polyhydramnios, or just one large fetus. And then the third T is tissue. So that stands for placenta previa and placenta accreta. And the fourth is thrombin. So that stands for people who have co- coagulation disorders like DIC, which is disseminated intravascular coagulopathy, uh, liver dysfunction, having a low platelet count, or having inherited bleeding disorder like von Willebrand's, or if they're taking anticoagulation therapy for conventional blood clots, which so many people do. And so again, the most common of these four T's of these causes, the most common cause of this postpartum hemorrhage is gonna be uterine atony. And so, um, and this and the, this cause of uterine at, atony uh, leading to postpartum hemorrhage and death is, is truly more common in low resource countries who don't have these active management options. But even in the United States, uh, postpartum hemorrhage has doubled in rate in the last 10 years. And now I wonder, is this due to induction? Because so many of my patients are induced. Um, So the question is like, how is it best to manage that third stage of labor, um, which is the delivery of the placenta? And, And this author wonders, is it really necessary to actively manage, meaning, and we'll talk about what active management means. Is it necessary to actively manage that third stage for people who are at low risk for postpartum hemorrhage, as a, as opposed to expectant management, which is largely skin to skin and breastfeeding immediately after birth? So, what is active management? So, active management is what I think we're all used to. Um, so, giving a shot of oxytocin immediately postpartum. Early cord clamping, which I didn't realize that that was actually started, and I'm, I don't do OB, so I'm learning a lot here. I didn't realize that early cord clamping was done in order to um, actively manage postpartum hemorrhage and then um, c- controlling cord traction. Um, but there's no evidence that active management in low-risk women is really no better than expected management, and, in, and interestingly, active management seems to be associated with a risk of higher diastolic blood pressure in the parent, the birthing parent, vomiting after birth, um, after birth pains, and then higher risk of readmission for bleeding later on, like after they leave the hospital, which is amazing. Um, So for low-risk women, there's a greater interest in expected management, including skin-to-skin and breastfeeding as ways to really naturally raise that oxytocin, not just immediately postpartum, but also during that first week in order to prevent not only urinary acne, but that readmission for postpartum bleeding. So the author explored uh, whether there's really good evidence for this um, to prevent postpartum hemorrhage by optimizing natural oxytocin release. And so um, you and I both know that oxytocin comes from that, it's made in the brain, but it's stored in the posterior pituitary. And then it's released by all kinds of different stimuli like suckling, touching, stroking, feeling warm. And then during breastfeeding, we talk about oxytocin being released by hearing and smelling and thinking, touching the baby, all those great warm, fuzzy things that babies do for us. Um, But oxytocin plays a really important role in uterine muscle cells to contract and close those vessels that connect the placenta to the uterus. So by really raising that oxytocin right away early, it shuts down those blood vessels so that there's no longer that risk of bleeding as that placenta separates from the uterus. And then, of course, you know, oxytocin is crucial for milk ejection, which we want milk ejection. Uh, right away after birth for the baby to take cholesterol. So really, just, there, there, is some st- there, are, there is some research on this, really looking more so at oxytocin, um, and, and like how high oxytocin can be raised by these, um, by both skin-to-skin and breastfeeding. So one of the most important oxytocin studies was actually done in 1994 by the first author, Chew Up, and so they took 11 subjects and divided these 11 individuals into two groups. One group breastfed immediately after birth and the other group just did this manual nipple stimulation. And they found that the, that the group that breastfed, um, oh, I should say they put these pressure transducers into the uterus right after birth. So they could actually measure the degree of uterine activity that happened if they were breastfeeding versus nipple stimulation. They didn't give any oxytocin postpartum. um, And they found a 17 to 730% increase in uterine activity with breastfeeding or nipple stimulation compared to doing neither of these things. Um, And the uterine activity was actually higher, of course, in breastfeeding than nipple stimulation. So there's something more, not just suckling, but the warm fuzzy and the like, oh my gosh, I have a baby feeling that probably raised that oxytocin more. And they found that breastfeeding was equal to giving a shot of oxytocin postpartum in terms of uterine activity. So that was pretty exciting. Um, And then they did this. And then there was another study by another author. And this was um, done uh, later, I think in 2013, maybe, or I can't remember what year it was. But um, so this was actually looking at oxytocin postpartum, like not in the third stage of labor, but during those first three days, two or three days while they were in the hospital. So they took 216 women who spent time doing skin-to-skin care during the first three days of life and 216 who didn't do skin-to-skin care. And they actually found less post-delivery bleeding and shorter hospital stays in those who had um, skin-to-skin care. So clearly that ongoing oxytocin to continue that clamping down of the uterus is really important. And then another study that was published in 2013 they did a retrospective chart review among 10,000 women and they uh, analyzed whether or not they breastfed immediately after birth and whether they, they did skin to skin. And those who breastfed and or did skin to skin were much less likely to have a postpartum hemorrhage. So that was encouraging as well. So they basically concluded that postpartum bleeding is highly responsive to breastfeeding and skin to skin care. And these are, of course, cost-effective, it's easy to do, right? And they should be listed in practices of postpartum hemorrhage prevention for optimal mater- maternity care and, um, and also uh, management of postpartum hemorrhage, you know, so, you, so in other words, if, this, if a person is bleeding, to actually do skin-to-skin, to, you know, try these other behavioral measures rather than just giving a bunch of, you know, other medications to help to actively manage any bleeding that's going on. So I thought that was interesting, you know, I, um, you know, you wonder in low resource countries where they don't automatically have access to active management, like having oxytocin available, especially when people are delivering in homes, um, whether they really understand how important it is to have this baby skin to skin, how important it is to get this baby to suckle right away and whether or not that could really save lives since obviously bleeding, um, you know, postpartum bleeding hemorrhage is, um, there's going to be more deaths in low resource countries than there is in the United States.
1: Absolutely, that is so interesting. I mean, I think a lot of it makes sense and I'm not surprised by it, but I do agree with you that, emphasizing those sorts of things and recommendations really makes a difference in how practice evolves. And I think, you know, depending on where people are in the world, there are places where most babies are still born at home and not everywhere is the practice for those babies to then go skin to skin and stay there a lot in the first couple of days. I have a peds resident who um, spent time in Africa and she said, you know, culturally, everybody wants to hold the baby and they're not necessarily spending a ton of time with the mom in the first 24 hours if they let her rest. And so this sort of information is really important for community health workers to share with families so that they can do those things.
0: Right. And also just that frequency of breastfeeding, too, like really emphasizing. So, like that baby who's really sleepy, who won't wake up to feed, it would be also interesting to know whether, you know, our newer recommendations of like, okay, if this baby's not feeding the first 24 hours, express colostrum and give it on a spoon, just keep expressing. So, we talk about that in the um sort of that initiation of breastfeeding the you know bringing in increasing the uh or decreasing the interval of time that it takes for secretory activation to occur for the milk to come in basically but also like I think we need to be talking more about how this can reduce postpartum hemorrhage and the question is like if there is a little cotyledon present or a little bit of you know placental tissue present that may show itself later would just that really early intensive feeding and more skin to skin, um, would that help to actually expel that tissue faster? You know, so many women will complain that they have just such terrible cramps when they're feeding their babies. And of course we're like, yay, you know, that needs everything to working properly. Um, but, and I know a lot of first time, you know, with first babies, they don't notice it quite as much. Um, but, you know, getting, just again, you know, talking about how that's important for bleeding because bleeding still does happen. I have patients who go back and, you know, they're going back to the hospital after delivery. And we just don't talk much about that. We say, well, that's just a medical thing that just happens. We can manage it. They we bring them in. And, but, um, you know, it, 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 it still is a major issue. And, uh, I remember hearing a, a, um, a perinatologist talk about the fact that the risk of postpartum bleeding in the home is still a major risk of maternal mortality in the state of Iowa, um, and that we need to be, you know, talking much more about management of, post of, you know, prevention of postpartum hemorrhage. If this can happen just for these individuals who are home, there's no one there to help them, um, you know, it can be brisk and they can die. So, Yeah, so it should be, so rather than just always talking about skin to skin for breastfeeding, talking about it for hemorrhage as well.
1: That's so interesting. And I wonder about two things. Well, first I just, I find it amazing that the people who made up your four Ts managed to squeeze two placental reasons into a T of tissue. Um, And then the other one is, you know how you were saying that that bad cramping with breastfeeding happens more in multiples, and I wonder in general, if my impression that um, they may be at higher risk for bleeding, you know, people who are grand multiples in the hospital often are marked as high bleeding risks because they're having bigger babies, their uteruses are more likely to have poor tone and uh, whether or not this is particularly important if there are differences in first time moms um, and later, maybe somebody else has studied that or should.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, I wonder about that oxytocin feeling like so many. I feel like so many people with their first babies are like, I never feel my letdown. I never feel my letdown. And I say, you know, you will. Don't worry. Like, look, the baby's swallowing. You're having a letdown. You know, don't worry about not feeling it. Um, but then once, like, sometimes by four to six months, they start to have that sensation. And then with their subsequent babies, it's very strong. And it's the same thing with the uterus. Like, they don't notice it so much with the first baby. But then with subsequent babies, it's very strong. So you wonder if the, if those myoepithelial cells are just stronger, whether they're, whether the neuro like sensory connection is stronger, like, I don't know. Um, <laughs> it, it's just interesting.
1: to totally um, <laughs> digress, when I was a resident, I uh, did a newborn nursery rotation and it was about six months after I had weaned my daughter. And I, you know, there's babies crying all day long and I must've had oxytocin released from it because the next day I went to work and I was like, why are my breasts so sore? Oh, it's probably because all those myoepithelial cells were just clamping down all day yeah. long, still thinking that all that oxytocin was useful for me.
0: They were waking back up like, oh, hark, I hear my." I, I, <laughs> I was like, yeah. no,
1: we're not doing that again yet.
0: Right, yeah, that's funny. So my other topic that I wanna talk about today is about inverted nipples. And so you know, there's really, you know, most of the literature in inverted nipples is in surgery and about all the different surgical techniques, but what about breastfeeding and inverted nipples? So this was a study that had two components. This is a group of individuals from, who are in the plastics department at University of Southern California in Los Angeles. Uh, this um, study was entitled Crowdsourcing the Public's Perception and systematic review of nipple inversion and its repair with the first authors being Stone, Shawley, and Gould in the Journal of Women's Health in 2021. So it's a recent study. So the first part was a survey where they asked for the percent of incidence of nipple inversion. And then they asked whether the nipple inversion caused breastfeeding problems, whether they would like to have surgery, how much would they pay for the surgery? And then the second part was a systematic review of the literature on outcomes after nipple inversion surgery, specifically about breastfeeding. Although there was very like just a couple of paragraphs about their systematic review. So just to give a little background, according to the literature they state in their first paragraph, about 10% of of individuals have inverted nipples and they can be bilateral, they can be one-sided, It can be congenital or it can be acquired. And congenitally, people have looked at like the embryologic cause of this. Um, It can be due to a number of reasons, including failure of lactiferous duct development. So that's always important to recognize that there may not be much ductal development there. Um, But then the acquired type, the ones that are people who are not born with it can acquire Uh, inverted nipples from having some sort of ductal inflammation, which they didn't give examples of a subareolar abscess, mastitis, or some other type of inflammation. Um, And they said that sometimes the nipples can become inverted after a breast reduction or after a breast lift. Um, Inverted nipples can have four different stages, although some places, some groups say three stages. Uh, And that kind of, that stage um, is described by the degree of how retractile the nipple is and how much it can be everted. So you imagine a stage three or stage four, you know, you pinch it and it just won't come out. It's just kind of buried in there where stage one, it easily comes out and may stay out. Stage two, you know, you have to, you know, like roll it out and then it will go back in. So, you know, you and I see a a wide variety of these uh, nipples. So uh, the authors, again, were plastic, were in the plastic surgery department at USC and they surveyed 513 people, although they ended up with 398 in their survey analysis. So they did something interesting. Like I never heard of the Amazon Mechanical Turk. Have you ever heard of that before? No, so interesting. Amazon like recruits people to do all these tasks and you can make money doing tasks. And the different types of tasks um, kind of pay differently. So the more educated you are, the more you can get paid for your task. Like you can tutor, you can edit, you can do like, it's really amazing that I looked at this whole thing and I spent like 20 minutes, like looking at all the things that you can get paid for. Your next side hustle. What is it?
1: Your next side hustle.
0: Yeah, but you next physician side gig, right? Um, It's really interesting. I didn't know that this whole infrastructure of people doing task surveys, um, you know, doing like uh, internet research, you know, finding things like you can get paid like a penny to do this and a penny to do that. A lot of people make like $2 an hour doing this. It's very interesting for anyone looking for side gig, Amazon Mechanical Turk AMT, you can search it and go find something to do. Um, but anyway, uh, they actually used the survey through a, this, um, this Amazon mechanical chart, because they just have like a good selection of people. Like it, they say that the people who answer the surveys kind of reflect the United States. And so, for example, the average income among these workers, uh, who responded to the survey was about 69,000 U.S., 69 U.S. 69,000 US dollars a year, which I think is the median income in our country. Um, So they asked a lot of questions in the survey, uh, no matter what gender that person was, um, about whether they, uh, you know, their demographics, whether they had inverted nipples, whether they had trouble breastfeeding, why they had trouble breastfeeding, and if they wanted or had corrective surgery for their inverted nipples. So in their study, uh, 42% were male, 58% were female. And then it was pretty white, 73% were Caucasian, 7% African-American, 13% Asian, and 5% Latinx. And then they tossed out nine men who uh, said that they wanted corrective surgery in order to breastfeed. (laughs) Um, And then uh, they said that 17.8% of individuals said that they had nipple inversion either at, you know, they had it at some point and a certain percentage of those had nipple surgery already. So actually 17%, so of these 17.8% of people who had nipple inversion among those, about 17% ended up having nipple surgery, but about 30% said that they either wanted or had surgery. So like a third of people were uncomfortable with having inverted nipples. Um, And among those who breastfed, uh, I think it was like 57% of women who had inverted nipples who breastfed, 31.6% said that they had breastfeeding problems related to nipple inversion. Um, They showed the survey participants pictures of inverted nipples before surgery, then they showed the surgical procedure, and then they showed what the nipples look like after surgery. And they found that 58% of all the participants, whether they had nipple inversion or not, said that they would opt for surgery, that the nipples looked pretty nice after the surgery. But overall, most said that they would not be turned off if a partner had nipple inversion, and they wouldn't ask their, their partner to have surgery just because of the cosmesis. <laughs> You're laughing. I
1: mean, this is just hysterical. That's the I just point. wonder if the
0: surgeons were like looking at the, like the market for like, should they really market this or not? Like, what
1: Well, and I mean, I think that it's so fascinating that, you know, that line between like breasts for breastfeeding versus whether or not your nipple is a turn on, like, you know, our society is very like breasts are for sex and, you know, there's countries where people of both genders don't wear shirts. And that is not (laughs) the perception.
0: Right. So uh, just kind of digging more into the breastfeeding issue. So basically when you boil down this group who were asked about inverted nipples, 57% of the women, um, uh, of those who had nipple inversions, um, 57 57 of the women um, breastfed. And they said of those 57 women, 12% had trouble producing milk, 10% had trouble latching on, 4% said that they had trouble latching, not because of the inverted nipple, because of the baby's anatomy. And 26% preferred just to give the baby formula. They weren't even interested in breastfeeding. And 7% had other reasons for breastfeeding problems. The thing is like with the 12% having trouble with producing milk, they didn't distinguish between those who had nipple surgery already and those who didn't. So that was really, I think, a big problem. I don't think they had like a lactation person review this article because I would not have accepted that issue, I would have asked them to clarify that. And then they, they asked everyone, um, this is what's interesting, they asked all the participants, not just those who breastfed, but everyone, everyone, whether they had inverted nipples or not, if they would recommend having surgery before breastfeeding in order to make sure that breastfeeding goes goes well? And the majority said yes. So that's kind of scary, right? Like, oh yeah, you should have surgery for that inverted nipple so that you can match on. And, you know, obviously you and I know that that's super dangerous. So, um,
1: well, and, and I think it's helpful to say why for our listeners.
0: Yes. So you and I both know that we don't have any evidence that correcting these nipples is actually going to correct is actually going to be safe in terms of the ability of the milk to exit the breast, right? So is there, is there a pre-existing problem with the lactiferous duct development as they stated early on with those with inverted nipples, or is it just going to cause scarring and trauma and, uh, cut you know, the ducts that are there, cut the ducts that are there. So then, so then the second part of the study was a systematic review looking at like, huh, I wonder what the connection is between surgery and breastfeeding. And so actually, so they only found one study that, that they said was a randomized controlled study that looked at surgical correction of the nipple inversion and breastfeeding. And they suggested that surgical correction, surgical correction of a grade two or three improves breastfeeding outcomes. So that's what they said in their article that the, that there was one article on this, one study. So they they concluded in this, you know plastic surgery article that nipple inversion is fairly common at 17 point eight percent, which was higher than what they found in in the literature, which stated it was ten percent and that the public does not consider it benign and that they would want to correct it before breastfeeding, but they actually don't say in their conclusion that they do recommend correction before breastfeeding. So then I thought, well, I'm gonna go look at that randomized control trial and see really what that was, um, and was it actually any good? So my library couldn't find it. Actually, I could find the abstract, but when I actually, like I I, when I actually was able to go into the journal through the library, they said there's something wrong with this article. So I wonder if it was pulled, I don't know. Um, but the the abstract is still there. So this, what and, I, and this was done in an Asian country, I'm not sure which one. This, the author stated that they wanted to do a non-surgical approach. So they stated in their abstract that Traditional surgical procedures of an inverted nipple might injure the normal lactiferous ducts and damage sensory function, and the aim of the study was to propose a minimally invasive and reliable method that preserves breastfeeding and corrects grade one and two inverted nipples. So the plastic surgeon said, oh, no, that randomized control trial was for grade two and three, but in reality, they just took the grades one and two, who actually, you know, ha- I mean that's not the group you should be worrying about really because they can actually roll out their nipple and have it stand out. So they, this was a randomized controlled trial where they took 230 females with either unilateral or bilateral inverted nipples and 30 people with normal nipples. And they, they kind of followed them preconceptually pre, pre from February, 2009 to, February, to January, 2016. So they probably recruited a number of people over all those years. And so they had the distractor group where they they did this operation where they embedded a distractor. And then the the people who were in the control group, they just were given these exercises to do to roll out the nipple. Now, because I couldn't find the article, I couldn't find what the distractor was. And I did like a Google search for like a distractor and came up with all kinds of different surgical techniques, but nothing that said distractor. So it must be something that's like unique to this particular group, they came up with this strategy. So the primary endpoint was full-term pregnancy, breastfeeding for four months. Um, And then the secondary endpoint was the completion of lactation without obvious complications like mastitis. or They said nipple craze, C-R-A-Z-E, but I don't know what they mean by that. Um, So what they found is that the grade one and grade two nipples had uh, increased height after this, the distractor was worn for six months um, and at 37 weeks of pregnancy, while the control nipples achieved only a marginal improvement at 37 weeks of pregnancy. And they said that those who wore the distractor, the success rates in breastfeeding were um, 84% for grade one nipples, 79% for grade two nipples. And then the control group, the breastfeeding success rate was 52%. Um for grade 1 nipples and 38% for grade two. So they said that after treatment with the distractor for six months, n- nipples in the distractor group showed no complications such as skin numbness or nipple necrosis. Oh my gosh. Um, that's good. Uh, the use of a distractor is a reliable and minimally invasive method. So, they, they don't, and again, I could find the article, but they're not saying like exclusive breastfeeding. They're just saying any breastfeeding. We have no idea what this is. And this is a very poor reference to use in the previous study that, oh, there's some success with like fixing inverted nipples. We have a big problem with, you know, research on inverted nipples in this country. And uh, I think, you know, my feeling that we just need to keep the knife away at this point um, until we have, you know, some kind of procedure that, you know, is really well-studied and, um, and you know, let the public know that, you know we, can, we, you know, we can try to deal with this in a natural way. But I wanna also mention, have you ever seen that article that was uh, using rubber bands at the base of the nipples? Have you ever heard of that? No. So this was actually an article that was published in Breastfeeding Medicine in 2011. And so this was done in India in a place where, you know, low resource area. And so the authors describe taking a 10 millimeter milliliter syringe and like, you know, how it has the lure lock on it, just like cutting it off at the end so that, and then um, sandpapering it or shaving down the edges so it's super smooth. And then putting that over the nipple and sucking the nipple in, right, into the, into the syringe, which is similar to like some of these other everters that are on the market now, you know, where you suck out the nipple. I'm Googling
1: nipple inverters while we talk, because I'm trying to remember a particular type of product so that I'm like, oh,
0: it's sort of like that thing. Yeah, there's a lot. Yeah, there's a few different nipple inverters that like, even at our hospital, they'll hand out to people like just these little suction cups, like just suck it out and, you know, And so, but anyway, with this technique, using the 10 milliliter, you have to listen to this, the 10 millimeter syringe, they put a rubber band on the the syringe. So once the nipple is pulled out, the rubber band gets slipped from the syringe to the base of the nipple. And they actually have pictures of this. Ah. And then, right. And the nipple has no ability to invert back in. Now it's inverted because it's being like, it's being scrunched, you know, by this rubber band. And then the baby just nurses and so they did this- Unless with they 19. choke
1: on the rubber band.
0: Well, well, yeah, that's my- <laughs> You're like, well,
1: Or there's ischemia or- to the nipple. I'm horrified.
0: Yeah. Yes. And so they did this with 19 babies who were not latching in the first few weeks. So these babies were between like four days and 14 days. They had not latched yet because of these inverted nipples. And so they showed the moms how to do this. And they said that all that really all but one were breastfeeding by 28 days. And that the rubber band technique was able to be abandoned by seven to 28 days after starting it. So I just thought, well, that's not something that I think anyone would be comfortable doing. You know, I mean, it's a matter of survival, right? Like if, in know, in that setting, if that's the only thing they could do to get this baby to latch, I suppose, you know, if it's a matter of life or death. But still, I would, oh my gosh, so worry about that rubber band. I just, that's a horrible I'm just, plan. Lord,
1: Lord. Yeah. So oh my gosh, I think it would be fascinating to just do a report on all of these devices. If you look like I found the the things that I was thinking of are called supple cups. And, uh, <laughs> yes. oh, supple and cups. Yeah. while I was looking, I also saw this syringe sort of similar to what you were talking about, that basically, where you would think there would be a plunger, it's got a twist up, like threaded plunger so you could use that to like very slowly increase the suck yeah. i mean like the things that people come up with it's mind-boggling just you
0: know, really. you know what I, mean? I mean my feeling about using those inverters is that you know you're basically you're you're trying to pull this nipple at a time that maybe the, there's, you know, there's control, everyone has contractile tissue, like there's, you know, that's, that's always there. And so if you use something like that, it, it, you know, you're pulling on muscles that may need a little bit of loving care before they're willing to just to relax. Right. And so what you can do is cause bruising. You can cause hemorrhage.
1: I've seen bad trauma.
0: Yeah. Trauma. Yeah. Cause what you're doing is you're really pulling on the blood vessels rather than the muscles necessarily. And so it makes sense to kind of like be kind to the muscles, relax the muscles, kind of like if you have a bad muscle cramp, you're not going to have someone just like suck on the skin of the muscle and pull it out. Like we want to just kind of tease that. So using, you know, what we call the time the pinch, you know, the Thompson exercises, like pinching the sides of the breast and rolling up the nipple and really getting that nipple, getting those muscles to relax, um, to let that nipple come out makes more sense.
1: Well, and I, I mean, I've always asserted that evolutionarily, if these were, you know, really not going to work for moms, they would have been weeded out of the population. To, I mean, 17% is a lot of people. Yes, And yes. I almost think that some of those people, depending on what they're entire breast and areola is like, it can be an advantage in early days because that baby isn't just getting on the tip of the nipple and crushing it. Babies can, depending on their anatomy and their size, latch onto the whole areola. And it actually doesn't matter if the nipple is standing out. And so there's so many, this sort of relates to the article you were talking about a second ago with the, um, you know, interventions and does um inducing labor lead to more bleeding like i now that i am noticing it see everywhere women who have so many problems in their breasts because of the amount of fluids they got during labor and they've got such engorgement and it's not always the super obvious giant basketball breast i saw this woman yesterday in clinic who was 3 weeks postpartum and her complaint was i'm not getting milk out of my right breast so she's getting like 80 to 120 milliliters when she pumps on the left. And she's only latching the baby once a day for Mm. a variety of reasons, but she's mostly pumping around the clock. She's getting 80 to 90 out of one breast and she's getting a max of 10 to 20 out of the other breast. And I looked at her breasts and she had not the like giant, shiny, uniform firmness of an engorged breast, But that sort of feeling of lots of little peas in there, which are really full glands of milk, and she had dense tissue, and I was like, you know, it's not that you don't have milk on this side, it's that it's not coming out. And we started to hand express, and there were sprays, and she was like, I've never seen that, and you know, milk started coming out of her breast. And of course, after three weeks of getting so little out, I'm sure it's going to take a while for that breast to start to be able to produce the volumes of the other side. But she truly had, you know, I did some lymphatic massage and enough edema in the posterior areola that it was squishing all the ducts closed.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: And she Mm -hmm. was referred to me by her OB, the basic, you know, skills that are required to help this woman. I was teaching her how to adjust her pump settings because she wasn't doing it correctly. And that hand expression should not have waited three weeks
0: exactly yeah unfortunately yeah yeah i think i just think that we psych I, I i do worry about you know kind of getting back to the inverted nipple thing i do worry about like all the nipple shields that are being given and the assumption that people need nipple shields and i try to explain to people you know the breast is just like a sandwich with a pickle sticking out of it and that nipples the pickle and who needs a pickle in their sandwich like, <laughs> you're, not, you're lashing onto the sandwich not the pickle and sometimes a pickle gets in the way and you can't get to the sandwich. But when you add the nipple shield, you're adding a huge pickle back in, you can't get to the sandwich, you know. Stop. Stop. Yeah. But I've had, um, but I mean, so much of this is related to infants, right? Like I'll never forget one of my more recent families who I worked with her, with her for, she has really very like, She always made a lot of milk with her three kids, but her nipples like barely saw the light of day. They just were always inverted. And the first two babies, because she had a high milk production, she had like a, you know, a large broad areola and um, the baby, the first two babies just could not latch. And she didn't really continue to try after the first couple of weeks. And then with the third baby, the baby, she's like, okay, this is my last baby, hope this baby latches. The baby launched immediately after birth, just had a wide open mouth and, you know, the baby's only 37 weeks too. And took in that whole, you know, areolar region and uh, didn't stop nursing until, you know, being a toddler. And um, she's like, yeah, like this baby, you know, like he was apart from the other babies because he could do it. Like he could really, um, you know, just maybe his jaw wasn't as tight, maybe he was more relaxed or whatever it was. Maybe she was more relaxed this time. But um, I think it was, you know, you can see how infant factors play such an important role um, with latch and also uh, the parental expectations and just being chill about it, and just wait. Um, yeah. I
1: mean, I think a lot of this is a confidence game. You know, people are yes. told that their nipples aren't good enough and then they are, you know, giving up quickly because they're concerned. And so, you know, a lot of people with reassurance and support, they're going to make it past that. Another gal I saw yesterday said, you know, breastfeeding was going okay. She was having some pain and she was like, I got this nipple shield as a baby gift. Should I be using it? I was like, no, throw it away. Um, and just, you know, lack of education.
0: And, and, you know, so, you know, getting re- and digressing to that whole thing of like, you're given a gift and you should use it. Like, you know, you um, are given, you know, you buy a house and someone gives you a toilet plunger and who knows the house and, and you think, okay, the pipes, you know, the toilet might not work very well if I have to use a toilet plunger all the time. So that's kind of the sign, right? So when you give someone a double shoulder, you give them formulas, a gift pack, you give them a haka, you give them a pump, people are like, oh, I guess I need to use this. And uh, that's a whole other topic. I would love to just do a survey on it. Like you were given it. Do you think you should use it? You know, kind of thing. So Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah.
1: and it's also the other last thing I thought of when you were talking about, you know, the infant factors and whether or not that last baby could open wide is this um, woman who had been given the nipple shield. She came to me for pain and she had this baby who had had a tongue tie release and had been, you know, had some body work. And um, this woman was really interesting because of her career as a speech therapist. And I looked at the latch and this and that, and she had kind of a really small areola. And so she had such dense breast tissue, we almost right up to the nipple that when the baby was trying to compress to get milk out, he kept squeezing hard and pushing himself back because his gums rolled off the dense tissue onto the areola. And then he had a powerful suck. And so he would slurp back deeper. And so you could see the skin by the lip moving in and out of his mouth. And she was like, you know, and he had his lip tie cut, but there's still, you know, pressure on it. And it's because of his lip and, you know, she, and I said, you know, if he had a mom that had a really big areola, he wouldn't be doing this. It's technically challenging because of the, the way, you know, you guys fit together and it's to a balance, not making her feel that it's her fault. Right. Because her anatomy is more challenging. Um, but with a little bit of latch work, she had decreased pain and, yes. you know, this baby's already had all of these things and, you know, it's a two-person
0: process. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I just remember um, many years ago when I first started in lactation, but like one of our first at our first ABM meeting, actually, there was a physician from Canada. and we were talking all about like pathology and pain. And she went to the mic. She said, look, she said, this is all about latch. Stop at the pathology, you know? And I'll never forget when she said that because I was really early in my career. I'm like, huh, okay, I'm going to remember that. And it's so true. Like it's all, you know, so much of the simple latch and the dance, you know, and being a good dance partner. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, well, I'm going to end it there. And it was great talking to you, Karen. Um, and I hope we gave some food for thought for. Oh, yes,
1: Anne. Thank you for those very
0: interesting articles. Thanks. Okay, talk to you later. <laughs> Bye. For questions regarding this podcast, please contact us through our website at lackeded, lacted.org. We have other educational projects, including the Clinical Question of the Week our little green book of breastfeeding management for physicians and our various educational courses and conferences for physicians and other breastfeeding supporters. If you want to see what we look like, check out our breastfeeding medicine podcast, Facebook page, where you can post any questions or comments about our podcasts. Thanks for listening. And we'll be back with you in about four weeks.